right. Good morning, church. Uh, if you'll open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, we're going to pick up where we left off last week and finish chapter 9. And uh, while you are opening your Bibles or uh, finding this passage in uh, your, your, your digital device, uh, I want to let you know what's going on here the rest of the summer. Uh, this is going to be our last sermon in Acts for the summer. We're going to come back in the fall and pick back up with chapter 10. Uh, this is just a natural break within the book of Acts. And uh, uh, so we're going to finish nine. Uh, what we're going to do in the summer is just go through some, some topical uh, expository sermons, uh, some expositions from Scripture, some various topics, and then like I said, we'll come back in the fall and we'll finish up uh, Acts then. So let's, let's read our text. This is Acts chapter 9, starting with verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid her in the upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciple was hearing that Peter, the apostle, was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come with us without delay. <clears throat> so Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, knelt down, and prayed. And turned to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. <clears throat> now these two little accounts, they're, they're, they're quite fascinating. And it's sandwiched between two spectacular accounts. We had last week we saw Saul's amazing conversion. And then what we'll eventually see here in chapter 10 is Peter's heavenly vision. And so these, these two little accounts can kind of seem a little out of place. Uh, and, and maybe even a little less miraculous with, with some of these more seemingly spectacular things on either side of them. So the question could be, why did Luke include these accounts? Well, before we can answer that, we need to remind ourselves of the paradigm that Luke sets up for us about Acts in the beginning of Acts. In chapter 1, the first two verses, Luke wrote this, in the first book, O Theophilus, uh, just quick pause, the first book meaning Luke's gospel account, and Theophilus is the recipient of both that account and the book of Acts. So just to be clear then, the, the gospel of Luke and Acts is sort of a, a two-book, one-volume set. The direct recipient for both of these is a man named Theophilus. And so this two-book, one-volume set tells one story, and here it is. Luke writes, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt, dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. You see, the implication is that Acts 
is Luke writing all that Jesus is continuing to do and teach through the Holy Spirit in the lives of his disciples. This is why in chapter 1, a few verses later, verse 8, Luke records Jesus having said to his disciples, you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Not you will witness about me, well, that is true too. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts is about what Jesus is continuing to do through the Holy Spirit in the lives of his disciples. So why did Luke include these two accounts in chapter 9? Well, these two accounts unavoidably and unmistakably, in maybe more ways than you might originally think, show us that Jesus himself was present and active in his people as he promised he would be. And listen, this, this account wasn't, wasn't to just remind Theophilus or the early church that Jesus was active, but it was also meant to remind us in some similar and, and certainly dissimilar ways that Jesus is still alive and active in the lives of his people some 2,000 years later. Truly the same power that was in Jesus and that was in the apostles and disciples then is still in us now. So here's the takeaway. You see it on, the, on your screen. Jesus is still present and active in this world, doing the miraculous to restore the broken and redeem the lost through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his disciples. So we got two parts to this sermon. We've got them then and us now. Them then, us now. So them then. Let's, let's look at this a little account about a man named Aeneas. Let's reread verses 32 through 35. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, in verse 31, the last verse that we looked at last week, the, the church throughout Judea and Samaria were experiencing peace, and evidently to the degree that there was some freedom for them to start moving around. And so, so Peter leaves Jerusalem and heads northwest, preaching the gospel, and it seems to be primarily encouraging the saints. And he finds himself in Lydda. Lydda is about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It's a coastal town the southernmost end of the coastal plain of Sharon, which is near modern-day Tel Aviv. So, so Peter came to Lydda to encourage the saints, and while there, amongst the saints, Peter found a man named Aeneas, who had been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. Eight years. This was not a temporary circumstance. There was a point in his life when Aeneas could use his legs. There was a point in his life when he, when he worked, he had a job. Being a part of a coastal town 
Water was a part of the culture, and so Aeneas most likely enjoyed fishing or swimming or being, certainly being around the water or in the water. At one time, things were normal. He most likely was ostensibly self-sufficient. And then something paralyzing happened, and life was never the same. It wasn't a wheelchair for him. It was a bed that he was imprisoned to for eight years. Listen, day-to-day living in the ancient Near East was, was difficult enough. Being paralyzed in a remote first century village was virtually a death sentence. This man's body was broken, and no doubt there was a constant temptation to hopelessness. But Peter finds him and said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Now, Peter doesn't say the power of Jesus heals you. No, the language, in his language, Peter wants Aeneas to know that Jesus is alive, he is present, he is active and doing the miraculous. And immediately, Aeneas rose. Look, having been bedridden for eight years, Aeneas would have had weak bones, and he would have severe muscle loss. And immediately Jesus restored it all. What's more, maybe here, verse 35 suggests that Aeneas got busy walking because folks saw him in Lydda and and, and beyond Lydda and other parts in Sharon. And as people saw this walking declaration of Jesus' activity, they, they turned to the Lord Jesus to be saved. Peter and Aeneas made sure that, that people knew that Jesus was the one who healed Aeneas, not Peter. Now, maybe this account sounds familiar. Well, Luke records Jesus having performed a similar miracle in Luke chapter 5, verses 18 through 26. Let, let me read that to you. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him for Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemes? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then listen to these parallels. Jesus said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he was lying on, and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, Luke records, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Now, there there are other accounts of Jesus healing the lame, 
the crippled, the, the paralyzed, and, and, and no doubt, Theophilus and the early church would have heard the echoes of those in Aeneas being healed. You see, between being reminded of Jesus' previous miracles and Peter explicitly giving credit to Jesus for this healing miracle, we're to unavoidably see that Jesus was still present, that Jesus was still active doing the miraculous to restore the broken, like Aeneas, and to redeem the lost. Like those who came to faith in Jesus because of what he did for Aeneas. All right, let's look at the second account, this this of Tabitha. Let's reread verses 36 through 43. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went to them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out, knelt down, and prayed. And turning to the body, said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So Tabitha was a disciple of Jesus who lived in a town of Joppa, which was about 11 miles northwest of Lydda. And she became very ill and died. Now, the custom of that day was to wash the, the body, the bodies of the dead. And so Luke is letting us know that, that her body is prepared for burial, and yet they, they put her upstairs. Now, it's not clear, though, if that meant that they expected more from Peter than just comfort and consolation. Um, Maybe they were expecting a resurrection. The, the text doesn't tell us. The disciples at Joppa hear that the apostle Peter is not far from them, so they send two men to go and try to retrieve them, to retrieve Peter. Peter agrees. He comes. They, they go as quick as they can. And when Peter arrives, they, they usher him upstairs into the room with the body, and he is greeted by numerous weeping widows. Well, Like the account with Aeneas, Peter wastes no time. He's everyone leave the room, he kneels down, and he prays. Now, Luke does not record for us what Peter prays, and he didn't have to. We just came from reading about his engagement with Aeneas. And so no doubt, Peter on his knees was crying out to Jesus, pleading for him to do what only he can do, the miraculous. And after calling on Jesus, Peter turns to Tabitha's body, dead body, and says, 
Tabitha arrives. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Peter gives her his hand and helps her up. And then he ushers in the disciples and the, and the grieving widows to, to show her as alive. Verse 42, like verse 35 did with Aeneas, verse 42 makes it clear that this miracle didn't stay contained and that Jesus was the one who was praised for having done it because many come to believe in Jesus, not Peter, for salvation. Now, maybe this account sounds familiar as well. Luke records Jesus having performed a similar miracle in Luke chapter 8. Let me, let me read that for you as well. And, and note, there are, even, there are even more parallels with this one. This is Luke chapter 8. This is starting verse 41. There came a man named uh, Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored Jesus to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And skip down to verse 49 if you're following along. While Jesus was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But Jesus said, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they, they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And in Mark Chapter 5, verse 41, we're told that her name is Talitha. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what happened. No, no doubt the, the staggering number of parallels between Tabitha and Talitha's resurrection would have struck Theophilus and the early church. But both dead were females. As Jesus had done, Peter sent the mourners outside of the room. The, the words Peter said to Tabitha, lying dead before him, are virtually the same words Jesus spoke to the dead girl. Only one letter is the difference in their names. Luke records that Peter was there in the room when Jesus raised Talitha from the dead. So, so maybe, maybe Peter was consciously imitating what he had seen done. It's hard to say, but by intentionally reporting the similarities, Luke is demanding our attention. Friends, Luke just won't allow his readers to forget that Jesus was still present and active, doing the miraculous to restore the broken like Aeneas and the grieving friends and to redeem the lost like those who came to faith in Jesus as a result of the miracles. Verse 
Now, as I said earlier, this account wasn't to just encourage Theophilus and the early church. It's also meant to encourage us. Jesus is still doing the miraculous to restore the broken and redeem to loss. Now, there is a difference from what they would have expected to have seen from what we should expect to see now. In other words, them then and us now are both expectant to see Jesus present and active, but in some similar and dissimilar ways. So we see two spectacular miracles in our passage. Post the ascension of Jesus, miraculous signs and wonders were unusual events that followed the apostles' ministry. And, and they, they were... Uh, they, they followed the apostles' ministry to authenticate both their ministry and their message as being from God. That said, when the apostolic era ended, when the last apostle died, they seemed to have ceased as well. Certainly, they're no longer prevalent or normative. In our post-apostolic age, Scripture is our authenticating authority. As one commentator has said, with the completion of the canon, miracles are no longer needed to authenticate the message of the gospel. Instead, Scripture is self-authenticating. By this we mean that just as we know the sun is bright by looking at it, and that honey is sweet by tasting it, so Scripture's truthfulness is made clear by its character and nature. We do not need to appeal, indeed we should not appeal, to any supposedly higher authority to authenticate the gospel message. But, but this doesn't mean that God no longer performs miracles or is absent from his creation. For sure, God can and does intervene in his creation and acts in ways that can only be described as miraculous. I mean, listen, we, we've heard from missionaries, missionaries that we support come and give testimony of, of instances of healing overseas that God used to bring people to faith in Jesus. So we're not trying to put God in a box, but it would seem that when the apostolic era ended, the prevalence of the miraculous signs and wonders ended too. So that said, us now. How can I say that we should expect that Jesus is still active and present doing the miraculous. Well, friends, I can confidently say that we should be expectant because Jesus is still doing uncountable miraculous things. The, the, the problem is not that Jesus isn't doing the miraculous. The, the, the problem is we've grown unimpressed by the miraculous things he's doing. As I've said for the past two weeks, we, we, we see some amazing miracles in Acts. Astounding miracles. Like Aeneas being able to use his legs again and walking to Tabitha being raised from the dead. But, but friends, we, we see no miracle as great as the miracle of conversion. And Jesus is still doing the miraculous to redeem the lost through the Holy Spirit in the lives of his disciples. Disciples like, like you and like me. 
Jesus still converting people. The question is, does spiritual conversion still amaze us as being miraculous? Does spiritual conversion still amaze us as miraculous? Or are we unimpressed by it? Let's ask you this way. Are, are you more impressed with Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed, and immediately he rose, or, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord? How, how about this? Are you, are you more astounded by Tabitha, arise, and she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, or it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. I think if we're being honest, as we're reading through Acts, we are far more taken aback by Aeneas and Tabitha than we are of the conversions that followed. I think if we're being honest, we, we, we look at the, what seems to be the, the teleportation of Philip at the end of chapter 8, and we're far more impressed with that than the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. But listen, friends, like the biblical authors, we should be far more blown away by seeing the spiritual resurrection of Saul than we are the physical resurrection of Tabitha. I mean, can you believe it? The holy God of the universe has made a way for his eternal enemies to become his eternal friends. And what's more, those whom God saves, he then uses, he deploys to make more disciples. And friends, there's, there's more. There's more miraculous things that Jesus is doing in our lives that, that we can sadly grow cold and unimpressed by. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is causing his disciples to, to do otherworldly things, miracles like loving our neighbors as ourselves, forgiving others, Humbly admitting wrongs and asking for forgiveness. Humbly putting others' interests ahead of our own. Serving one another. Turning the other cheek. Loving our enemies. Living an increasingly transformed life as evidenced by the Spirit's fruit being produced in our lives. But, but friends, all of these things we can be tempted to see as unmiraculous, as, as things that just should be expectations for, for being a good person. But nothing could be further from the truth. Titus 3.3 says our natural state is hating others and, and enslaved to sin. Friends, we need to wake up. Don't sleep on the miraculous things that Jesus is doing right around us. It is Jesus who is doing the miraculous in our lives. Here's what I want to do. I want to take the last couple of minutes before we close, and I want us to consider about the miracle of forgiveness, forgiving one another. 
This is one of those things that we can kind of just grow cold towards, be unimpressed by, just feeling like forgiving one another is just a, a normal expectation. But let's be freshly reminded that, that when we see and experience forgiveness and forgiving one another, those are instances of Jesus showing up as alive and present and active in our lives. H have you ever been betrayed by someone? Been betrayed by someone whom you would have, you would have called your friend, but who, who lied about you, slandered you? Been betrayed in your marriage? Or your spouse has given their heart or even themselves physically to another. Have you been physically or emotionally abused or took advantage of in some way? When you think of your offender, Do you have warm thoughts? Just the thought of them makes you instantly angry and just relives all the hurt and pain. Many scriptures talk about forgiveness. Here's one, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Brothers and sisters, true God-glorifying forgiveness can only come from a heart that has experienced God's forgiveness. Forgiveness is the supernatural overflow from a forgiven relationship with God. Now, if, if I were to tell you to just forgive, everything in your life will be better, and so too with your relationships, forgive. Could you do it? Would you do it? It sounds easy, and, and maybe for some it, it is that, that easy. But certainly for others, it is difficult to forgive at the depth of their wounding. I mean, even though we know God tells us to forgive and that we'd find freedom from bitterness and anger, it's still difficult. I've counseled people who say, I've forgiven, but then as we start to work through their wound, they, they start realizing that there's this place lurking in their heart where unforgiveness still resides. This is where the pain is lodged and where God needs to be invited to bring his healing and comfort. This is where the, the miracle comes in. We need God's supernatural help if we're to ever truly let go of the pain and offense and so release our offender from their relational debt. Friends, for forgiveness is a, it's a decision and a promise to release a person 
by canceling the debt the person has with you. To say I forgive you marks paid in full across the record of wrong. The debt is canceled. It means you, you cannot and will not hold this sin against the offender. When, when you forgive, you relinquish the rights to exact payment. It's done. It's a miracle for someone to give up their offense. I mean, think of that person who had greatly offended or wounded you. Did it, did it not take a miracle of God for you to let go of that offense? Or, or think of someone you have wounded. Does it not take a miracle for them to forgive you? Listen, if you, you said no to either you may not be intending to, but let me suggest that you are both diminishing the severity of sin and the supernatural nature of forgiveness by humanizing it. This isn't normal. This isn't natural. Holy Spirit and power, Jesus, work in a miracle. Forgiveness is abnormal and supernatural. Forgiveness born out of the gospel, that defies all cultural expectations. In Matthew 18, verses 21 through 22, we read that Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Times. It, was, it was common among the rabbis that day to encourage people to forgive for repeated sins up to three times, and after that, no more. So Peter's suggestion of seven times is pretty radical, and yet Jesus says to effectively forgive an innumerable amount of times. Now, listen, forgiveness doesn't remove consequences, Forgiveness also doesn't minimize the wrong that was done. Forgiveness reveals Jesus as active, doing the miraculous to restore broken relationships through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his disciples. Forgiveness is a miracle of Jesus. I mean, the Lord knows that we want to experience this miracle. And yet, it wouldn't be hard to imagine that there are some of us this morning who are finding it difficult to experience this miracle. I, I, I don't know your situation. But I know that if the Holy Spirit lives within you, then you have the same spirit that restored Aeneas' legs. You have the same Holy Spirit that raised Tabitha from the dead. You have the spirit of Jesus living within you, 
in your heart. And like Peter, I want to encourage you to fall to your knees and cry out to Jesus, asking him to do the miraculous in your heart and enable you to forgive. You have otherworldly, supernatural help at your reach. Jesus wants to empower you from within to do what is otherwise the impossible. Friends, Jesus is still presently doing uncountable miraculous things in this world in the lives of the disciples. And really the question for us is, have we grown unimpressed with the supernatural activity of Jesus in our everyday lives? Have we grown unimpressed with the miraculous, seeing it as unmiraculous? Jesus is doing 10,000 miraculous things in the lives of his disciples all around us. Are we blown away by what he is doing? He is still active has not left. He is still with his people, showing himself as alive and present. These are two fascinating accounts. And Theophilus and the early church were to be encouraged by reading them and and us some 2,000 years later are to be encouraged as well. Jesus is still present and active in this world, doing the miraculous to restore the broken and redeem the lost through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness in having Luke record these two little accounts in the book of Acts. Father, so that we could be reminded that Jesus is not dead, but he's alive. And he is active, doing the miraculous. And Father, I pray that you would help us to have fresh eyes that are wide open to the realities of the miraculous things that our great and glorious Savior is doing in the lives of his disciples. Oh, God, will we be taken aback and amazed at Jesus' activity, no longer content to see the, the miraculous around us as just sort of common. Oh, they are anything but that. Help us. Help us to awaken our souls once again. Jesus is alive. And he is through the Holy Spirit active within us, causing us to do just otherworldly things. Help us to worship him, to praise him, to pray and ask for more power, more strength to continue to to do these miraculous things that, that sometimes we deem as unmiraculous, but they are anything but that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.